0: Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. What a wonderful day in his presence, yeah? This is June twentieth, Father's Day. Nicole or Nicole said it to me yesterday. She reminded me, and Tanner said it at the beginning of the service. Father's Day, nineteen ninety five, was when revival broke out in Brownsville, and there were other revivals happening at the same time. So it's always, uh, it's always right. Jeremy, (laughs) you were there that day, right? Uh, It's been. it's, it's been a roller coaster of incredible experiences to be able to participate in the various revivals in the earth in my life. And uh, I just want to tell you that God did not give the best that he had to give in 1995. There is still more. There is always, there is always more. And uh, we have amazing days right in front of us. So I'm going to dive into this, and I'm going to ignore the clock. Yeah. And, but but I'm, I am aware of what time I'm starting. Uh, my sermon title today is Hallelujah, Babylon Has Fallen. Uh, some of you were in a Wednesday night prayer meeting when we sang that several weeks ago, a song that I wrote for for this project that we're doing, uh, and today I'm going to talk about it. I was going to call it Falling, Falling, Falling. Babylon is always falling. Last week, we took you through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and at the end of each series of judgments, there was this, an incredible outbreak of worship in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about the seven bowls and the final, uh, th- this was the conclusion. There were three series of judgments and and we believe that they were three perspectives of the same judgment as, as God released them uh, To the earth, and they've been happening for thousands of years. When he prophesied to the seven churches, he said, These things that must shortly come to pass, and he begins to lay out all of these things. And so, much of the destruction of Jerusalem in that day, 70 AD, was a fulfillment of some of this. But it continues because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, so I'm going to try to cover as much of this as is humanly possible. The meaning of Babylon. To what is John specifically referring to when he writes Babylon? Yeah. Is he referring to a particular city or a particular nation for the first century, actually called Babylon? The answer is no. Babylon is a code word in this book with a long, long history. It starts long before recorded history in the story of the Tower of Babel. You remember that? In fact, the word Babylon is derived from the word Babel. The story of the Tower of Babel is told in Genesis 11, and we're not going to read it. Humanity, having long ago left the living God out of the equation, seeks unity in a tower that rises to heaven. They said, let us build a name for ourselves in the fourth verse of the 11th chapter, meaning let us build a new society without God. We will be our own Lord. We will rebuild the world ourselves. The story then tells how God confused their languages so that humanity cannot find its unity apart from God. Babel, Babylon is a code word for humanity seeking to build the city without God. It doesn't take long to just watch the news for 10 minutes and you can see people in the earth trying to build a nation without God. Hence we pray. In, in this passage of scripture that I'm about to read for you, Babylon was carried, a woman who represented Babylon I'm, I'm careful I, be, all the kids are gone right well there's Sophia but she's a teenager King James calls her the Babylon the, the Babylon whore yeah. I think I'll use the word harlot throughout the, that doesn't seem as quite as abrasive I may slip a few whores out in in my language in my conversation Babylon, this Babylonian harlot was carried by a beast with seven heads that represented seven hills. At the time Rome was, at the time Rome was built, when John wrote this, Rome was built on seven hills. So while the the guards are looking through the letters before they allow them to go out, what do you call that? They're... they're, uh, There's a word. There's a word. They're they're, they're checking it out. They want to make sure. Do what? They're inspecting, but that's not it. This is my sermon. Leave me alone. (laughs) So John has to write in code. And, and, And these people that are deciphering, trying to decipher, what are you saying? Thinks he's just crazy old man and why did they arrest him in the first place he's in his 90s what is such a big threat a 90 year old man they boiled him in oil and that wasn't enough he didn't die so they imprisoned him on this island what are they threatened by so he writes these letters and he writes with these exaggerated images And they think he's crazy. But the people that he sends the letters to understand. Just so that this is a real sermon, we're going to read a passage of scripture. Revelations, the 15th chapter. I'm going to read, start with verse one. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Now this scripture picks up where last week stopped. We got through the seven seals, and then we went through the seven trumpets, and then there was an explosion of worship again. I'll read it to you in a second. But, uh, and we're about to go into the final seals, the final judgments, the bowls. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last. Because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass. Hang on to this idea. Remember this image, the sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses. Notice John is connecting to Exodus, to the children of Israel. He's taking us back to Egypt. He's taking us back to Moses. He wants us to understand uh, the images, the, the, the parallel. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. In King James, it says, they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, they sang. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So so I wrote the song, I'm just gonna sing a little bit of it. Gracie always laughs at me when I sing in my sermons, just so you know. Uh, Mighty and marvelous, all of your miracles, Lord God. Almighty Righteous and true to us Your ways are glorious King of all the nation's King of all the ages Who will not fear with reverence and Who will not fear the Lord, the Lord? Glory and praise to the name over all. Who will not fear the Lord, the Lord? Nations from far and wide coming to glorify Yahweh. Yahweh, I like this line. There will be no dispute. Your deeds reveal the truth. You alone are holy. And that's all. I'll go on. Of course, there's a, a bridge that says, Let the temple be filled with your glory. Your power and glory, magnificent glory. And like all bridges, you sing it again and again. So I'll skip the agains and I'll go right into falling, falling, falling. Babylon has fallen. So we began. Revelation began with a vision of Christ whom we worship in the first chapter and was followed up with the vision of God's people at worship in Revelation 4 and 5. It will conclude, we sang about it today. Getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. We were singing that. Uh, Revelation 21, 22, it will conclude with a newly created heaven and earth fashioned into a place of worship a sanctuary filled with worship I encourage you to to dive into Revelation and and, and check it out uh, push your way through the hard stuff and see how many thrones and how many times worship is going forth John an exiled pastor with responsibility for his seven congregations being subject to a barrage of violence and propaganda from without and within can think of nothing better than to call his congregations to worship. No leader has shown as much evidence as John has of being in touch with the response Of the many difficulties of living a difficult life in a difficult world he understood that john's recurring visions of worship are not pious or escapist but they're his theological convictions he believes in worship when he writes he's writing from his theological position the conviction is that god's action Not the world's action is what we want to be involved in. The world is not the context for dealing with God. God is the context for dealing with God and the world. In a world in which we are subject to and disoriented by all that's going on, worship is the act in which we become reoriented worship grounds us when the world is spinning out of control and john shows us we we showed you last week between all of these judgments he threw in this vision of spectacular fantastical worship worship is the central act of christianity we do many other things in preparation for, and as a result of worship, we sing, we write, we witness, we heal, yeah. teach, paint, serve, help, build, clean, smile. But the centering act is worship. Worship is the act of giving committed attention to the being and action of God. I'll say that again. Worship is the act of giving committed attention. Everybody say committed attention attention. to the being and action of God. The Christian life is established on the faith that God is in action. When we worship, it might not look like we're doing much. And we're not. We're looking at what God is doing. Worship is not what we're doing. I mean, we may exert a lot of energy to do it, but the real work that we're paying attention to is the action of God. We're looking at what God is doing and orienting ourselves with the compass points of creation and covenant, judgment and salvation. In the press of world events, and there are many, between the glamour of celebrities or the violence of terrorists, Worship seems absurd. Most Christians feel the absurdity. Some feel it to the point of abandoning it. Surely this can't be the right thing to do for human beings of strength and goodwill. Surely it's a waste of good energy to hand around a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. the more a person becomes aware of the catastrophes that threaten human existence, the more the act of worship is called into question. The people who quit worshiping are not, for the most part, people who don't care about the world, but it's because they care about the world that they stop worshiping. It's not because of a lack of morality that worship is abandoned, but because of it, because of morality. They desert the place of worship with the best of motives in order to do something about the world's condition. The people with whom we've been worshiping all these years many of them nice enough, but mostly unaware of the gravity of the condition of our world. And they leave them in search of, mo- of a moral high ground. Wow. Wow. There are others that don't desert the place of worship, but in staying, they do something worse. They subvert it. They turn it into a place of entertainment and lights and smoke. And I'm not against any of that. But we make it a place um, of performance. We want to refresh bored and tired attendees and pump zest into them. If we start dancing maybe we'll get them all in so we're performing trying to get a reaction out of people or we turn it into a lecture hall turn it into a platform for launching good works shooting rockets of righteousness behind enemy lines Attention is subverted from what God is doing to what we are doing. And some, of course, remove themselves from worship out of sloth or they become indifferent. Long ago, lost interest in the question of what we said last week how long? Remember under the altar, the millions of people martyred, how long before you avenge our enemies? How long? We quoted from the Psalms, David saying the same thing. But the significant absentees are those who are impatient for an answer with no point in waiting any longer. Leave to do something on their own and abandon worship. Does this make sense to you? It is for these, those who quit worship and those who subvert it, that John demonstrates the continuity between God's action and our action, our witness, our praise which is worship out of which God shapes his action among us and in the world. There is nothing that we can do that will have more effect in heaven or on earth than worship. I'll say that again. There is nothing that we can do that has more effect in heaven or on earth than worship. The action of worship out of which Judgment develops that's in, in, in this particular text is arranged around the waters of baptism. A sea of glass mingled with fire. We first see that image and we think that's part of the judgment. No, that is where the people of God are around this sea of glass playing harps. Remember, we read that. A sea of glass. So pulpit, table, And the fountain are the furniture of Christian worship. At the fountain, we are washed from our sins. At the table, we are fed the body and blood of Christ. At the pulpit, the word of God is given utterance. The pulpit or the throne received its emphasis in worship in the book of Revelation 4 and 5. The table... We, we, we see the table in Revelation 8. Now the fountain of baptism becomes central. The worshiping congregation, including in its heavenly dimensions, are the slaughtered souls from under the altar who had complained about their deferred judgment. Gather around the waters of baptism. In this passage of scripture, singing a judgment hymn. judgment they've seen the the two versions of the seals and the trumpets and now the bowls are about to be poured out but before that happens they find themselves around water Hmm. it's appropriate that these waters give context as the judgments of God are coming In the waters of baptism, Paul said, we go down to our death and come up to our life. We were buried, this is Romans 6 and 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. At baptism, a life of sin Rebellion against God, refusal to serve his lordship, rejection of his love, it is drowned and new life in Christ is resurrected out of it. Okay. Moving right along. I want you to understand uh, the biblical references when we talk about this pool of water, the sea of glass, all the biblical references with water uh, as we consider and meditate on this idea of baptism, the watery chaos over which the spirit of God brooded over at creation. We see the waters there. The catastrophic waters that cleansed the earth of its degeneracy They were headed into continuous evil, but in those same waters, Noah and his family were carried to salvation. Judgment and salvation. The Red Sea waters that sank the Egyptian horses and riders from which Moses marched Israel into freedom. Death and life. Solomon's tank of water, in the, in the, as he built the incredible uh, house that, that, that would be the, the temple of God where they put the ark. He also put a, ta- a, a tank of water for uh, the priests to cleanse themselves and be purified as they administered temple worship. The Jordan waters in which John baptized Crowds of repentant sinners are the same waters that Jesus rose out of proclaiming God's kingdom. No one standing before these waters. There's a reason I'm, I'm it's, don't think that I'm just like, where is he going with all of this? I want you to understand the reason these waters of baptism are important to see. No one standing there would be able to think of judgment exclusively as something that happens to others. I've undergone this myself, they have to say. And here I am, despite the judgment, or more likely because of the judgment, I am saved and alive. Setting judgment in the context of baptism Guards against self-righteous gloating. Did you ever see somebody that did you wrong? Get what they deserved. And you say, they had it coming. You deserved it. How many times do we put ourselves in that position? But, but here we see the waters that give us the context for judgment. <laughs> From this company of people, the seven angels, their bowls filled with God's wrath, leave to pour out their judgments. As they empty their bowls and we see the consequences of it, we realize that this is nothing new but it's, it's continuous with what God has been doing all along if we only had eyes to see. In particular, we remember the 10 judgment plagues on Egypt because each of the seven bowls, and this was true of the seven trumpets and the seven seals, repeat an aspect of the judgment long known through that critical episode of our salvation story. And they link us, the clear link in this passage of scripture. The reason they sang the song of Moses is because they want us to see the connection with Egypt. And it reinforces John's emphasis on worship. We recall that the 10 plagues were not visited on the Egyptians because they were somehow Extraordinary evil people. But for a single reason, which had no apparent moral content, they were just determined, Egypt, the people of Egypt, Pharaoh, were determined to prevent Israel from worshiping God. That's the reason. Moses' task, and it's the same for every spiritual leader, that's you, that's me, that's you, that's you. Every spiritual leader was to shape a worshiping people. Yeah. Our task in the earth is to shape. Our task here at Dwell Church is to shape a worshiping people. When he came out of exile, he was in Midian, you know, he left, he escaped uh, Egypt because he had killed a man trying to defend someone else and then they were uh, trying to, to get him and so he escaped and then God called him out of this exile. So in obedience to God's call, he presented himself and his message to his people and the spontaneous Uninstructed response was worship. Exodus, the fourth chapter, verse 31 says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh had a single thing worship Moses opening request his opening petition to Pharaoh was let my people go so that we may hold a feast to God in the wilderness let us go we pray a 3 days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God that's in Exodus Five, verses one, two, and three. each time he approached Pharaoh, he repeated the request, "Let my people go that they may serve me, that, that they may sacrifice to the Lord that's found in uh, exodus 8:27 and hold a feast to the Lord, Exodus 10 and nine. He would come again and again. his task was to lead the people into worship yeah. pharaoh's sin was that he prevented them. The judgment plagues are sent over this issue. God was just trying to think of something extraordinary to do. This was the reason the plagues came to Egypt. The greatest evil that people of faith face from outside, Is the obstruction of worship the greatest evil that they face from inside is the subversion of worship this is what we have most to fear because we become lulled to sleep and it happens right under our noses and we don't even realize it we come in Do all the religious things and we sing our list of songs and and we may even feel goosebumps and then we leave and have no expression of relationship the rest of the week. It becomes just something we do on Sunday. And this is what John is giving attention to. And it's on this evil that the judgments are visited. The cry for and the questioning for God's judgment. How long do we have to wait for our enemies to be judged? Now, all of that is established in the proper context, in an act of worship. Judgment is no longer a matter of getting clear information or settling a personal grievance. It is experienced as the long ago worked out and accomplished action of God, which we enter through baptism. It's beautiful. The judgment theme is completed in the portrayal of the King James Version calls her the great whore. Revelations 17 verse chapter 17 and 18. Uh, Nicole said, please don't use that word. First, there is a narration of her destruction in chapter 17. Then there's a song on the same subject in Revelation 18. The sequence, story followed by song, is taken from Exodus and reinforces our perception that judgment is enacted in order to set people free to worship. The judgments of God come to set people free to worship. And when people are set free, the order of the day is worship. That's in Revelation 19. That's where we see it. Now let's just do the parallel. Exodus 14 tells the story of the judgment on Israel, the judgment on Egypt. I'm sorry, which was at the same time, the salvation of Israel. Judgment on Egypt. Salvation for Israel. Uh, yeah. wow. Exodus 15 sings a song on the same subject. Yeah. Hmm. The sequence. Story, then song. Story, song. Exodus 15... Exodus 14, the story, Exodus 15, the song. John uses this same pattern, but substitutes, instead of Moses and Egypt, he has the great harlot. We know that God's judgment came upon Pharaoh because he obstructed Israel's worship. We realize that the great harlot is judged for the same thing. The task of John's apocalyptic images is to provide us a way and show us what is going on in our lives. He uses these exaggerated terms to get our attention. What? at one time was clear in our faith, gets blurred and distorted through a smudged window glass of religion or culture. But our faith is rooted in our history. And John's images in the book of Revelation reconnect us to our history. That's why this connection is happening. The clarity comes in our daily encounters with bank tellers and Post office clerks, how many of you still go to the post office or do you go to UPS now? Or, or what's the other one? UPS? FedEx. FedEx. yeah, I don't know. It was, it was, it was not coming to my mind. We, we, but we talk to people at the drive-thru. All of these encounters with people are significant in the life of faith, but we're not aware of it. Most of the time, we're not living in a crisis in which we are conscious of our need for God, yet everything we do is critical to our faith. And God is critically involved in every conversation we have with every waitress, with every stranger we happen across at the mall, God is doing eternally important things, and we don't know it. All through the day, we speak words that enter people's lives and change them in minor or major ways, and we don't even know it. Okay, I'm going to try to land this. Oh, Jesus, I just saw the clock. The great harlot symbol of everyday experience is a very nice city to live in. Did y'all hear that? The great harlot symbol of everyday experience is a very nice city to live in. The woman and the scarlet beast on which she sits comprise the streets that we walk daily. The shops where we buy our vegetables. Making small talk with the guy at Starbucks. Starbucks. The worship of God in Christ is the most, in, the, the, the most important and the most difficult thing that Christians do. Because it is so difficult, we are always ready to go for something easier, especially if that something seems to include the essentials of worship. We had better not. The great harlot that sunk like a millstone in the sea is our warning. Harlot It's not a comfortable word to use in a church setting because harlot is a sexual term. But the revelation, the harlot in Revelation 7 and 18 is not about sex, it's a metaphor for worship gone wrong. John has nothing to say about the sexual conditions in the late first century. His business is with the conditions of our faith. His responsibility is to prevent his Christians from quitting the arduous life of worship in favor of something that looks easier. He tells them about the great harlot to open their eyes to the differences between the worship of the lamb and this other worship, which is really not worship at all. Hmm. Whoredom, I'm sorry, babe, is sex connected with money. The physical union of the sexes is given a price tag. When it has been paid for, the relationship is at an end until it's time to pay for it again. The coupling is sexual, the relationship is commercial pause now and contemplate where your kingdom relationships might fall into the commercial. I can tell you, as a pastor, I want more people to come to church. But I know some pastors that their motivation for building a church is to get more people because they'll give more money that will support their lifestyle and help them buy a bigger car, a nicer car, a bigger house, and it becomes commercial. It's it's religion for a price tag and it slips into our our lives and we're completely unaware of it that we have become a victim of babylon the system of Babylon has crept into our life, and we decide we've got so many thousands of people coming to our church giving us their money now that we've got to hurry up and get them in and get them out so we only have time for Jesus for fifteen minutes and then we got to move on and get through so we can take the offering because God knows that's why we're here to get that offering because we built such a huge edifice that it cost us fifty thousand dollars a month to exist so now we've created a machine that has to be fed and it's becomes about the money now I'm telling you God's gonna give us a big church and he's gonna give us wonderful people that are gonna be faithful givers because there is a principle of sowing and reaping and giving in God's kingdom but that is not who we are and it's not what motivates us we are motivated to pursue and experience the presence of the living God. It's like, I'm a songwriter. If I write a song and some, uh, like C.C. Winans just recorded Gracie's song, Hunger, and uh, the, the album is doing incredible, Gracie hasn't seen her first royalty check yet. And then so what happens is, I can tell you when I was 18 and I got my first, royalty check for $1,000 for a song that I wrote. I was like, I didn't even know this was possible. I didn't know I would get paid for this. I didn't know that there's, there's a price tag now attached to this commerce. And so, so, so what I have to find, and then what, here's, here's what happens. Then the publishing company says, I need you to write the next one of these songs because people want this. And so I'm like, oh, 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 $1,000. Uh, let's write 10 of these and they have to be $10,000 and I'm just 18 years old. What am I going to do with $10,000? But a price tag gets attached to. And so the truth is, God is our source and the one that brings provision. And it's a blessing of the Lord when finances come. And so we get to this place where we have to make a decision. What is our motivation? The song that paid me $1,000 was a song of worship. But now what I'm going after? What is, what is the price tag? I think any of us, if we search our own hearts, I'm telling you from a pastor's perspective what, how commerce becomes a part of the kingdom. And it's deceptive and it comes and takes over. And I don't want the judgment of God because the word is, the word says judgment begins at the house of God. So when the judgment of God comes, Where will we be standing? Oh, Jesus. The harlot is presented uh, as a complete contrast to the virgin bride. After the judgment of the harlot is complete, the contrast we see is the marriage. Of the supper of the lamb. We sang about it today. The bride is also a sexual metaphor. But it forms an absolute opposite contrast. The harlot, for the harlot, sex is the service of commerce. With the bride, sex is devoted to love. For the harlot, sex is a contract. For the bride, sex is a life commitment. For the harlot, sex is a calculation. For the bride, sex is an offering. We are sexual beings, so don't get comfortable. and Don't get uncomfortable when, when I bring it up, okay? In the experience of our sexuality, we know one another and are known. It's also our sexuality that where where we know God, where we know or don't know God. Harlot worship is a matter of moments and occasions. That means we gather on Sunday to check that off so that our conscience is clear, and then we live the other six days of our life without even acknowledging God when we get up in the morning or talking to him throughout the day, through those six days, it's only the moments. Jesus, this is kind of heavy. Bride worship gathers every part of life into union. Harlot worship is practiced on the principle of attraction and pleasure. Bride worship is for better or for worse. Bride worship is if you have a good Sunday or a bad Sunday in sickness and in health till death do us part. Bride worship is always an immediate disadvantage in competition with harlot worship. Harlot worship is indulgent while bride worship is sacrificed and faithful giving. That is why harlot worship is such a continuous threat to bride worship and why we need John's exaggerated caricatures yeah. of religious advertising. Harlot worship brings us great gain. We get what we want when we want it. We see this in how we pick our churches. We want what we want. I didn't, that, that just didn't feed me, so I'm gonna go somewhere else. That did nothing for me, so I'm gonna look for something else. Bride worship is an offering. We give ourselves and don't know how long we'll have to wait to be fulfilled. Throughout Revelation, the great scenes of worship that we've seen already and we'll see when we, as we get to the end of this whole study. The scenes of worship show God being served. The people come to him giving themselves in praise. At no place does he entice them with easy promises. Wow. Yes. Wow. I'm almost done, I promise. It's 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 the worship team's fault for going so long. In the great lament of the harlot in Revelation 17 over the harlot's demise. It's the longest and most detailed lament is from the merchants and the sea traders. In harlot worship, they get everything they want. Their lives overflowed with things, and now it's gone, wasted, up in smoke. They're now without everything they were promised. It is not their businesses that have collapsed, but their religion. A religion of self-indulgence, now it's gone. Salvation by checkbook is gone. God on demand is gone. Meaning by money is gone. Religion as feeling is gone. Self as God is gone. They are left with nothing but themselves. But the judgment of God reaches its conclusion not in the laments, but with a hymn of hallelujahs. The biblical book that the Revelation most resembles is the book of Psalms. It's brought to a formal conclusion with this identical word, hallelujah. Parallels between the Psalms and the Revelation are many. Both books are oriented in the act of worship. Both give voice to an enormous range of trouble. The enemy holds a conspicuous place in the experience of the psalmist and St. John. The longing for a fairly rendered judgment is passionately prayed, and it is all gathered to a conclusion with the word hallelujah. The word hallelujah occurs in Revelation for the first time in chapter 19, verse one. The timing is exactly right. Protecting our gratitude and relief for judgment from degenerating into gloating. Just when we're ready to gloat, we said it a little while ago, they got what they deserve. Just before we get that, John calls them to the first hallelujah. As judgment is enacted upon the harlot, and she's cremated and, and, and she's destroyed, we're exposed to the great danger of glee. Not yeah, yeah. talking about the TV show, I'm talking about the rejoicing in the destruction of our enemies. Longing for judgment is only a step, a step removed from a demand for revenge. The desire for God's judgments always totters on the edge of wanting to see our enemies writhe in pain. The saint wanting God's judgment to set things right has a way of slithering into the sadist who takes pleasure in seeing his tormentors punished. For hallelujahs pull us from the edge of gloating over pain and back to the act of worship where we are humble and adoring in the presence of his glory. The first hallelujah, Revelation 19.1, celebrates the truth and righteousness of God's judgment on the great harlot, that image that summed up every temptation to abandon God, every trap to betray Christ, every ambush to our endurance, every seduction to our faith, hallelujah! The salvation, the glory, the power, all belongs to our God. The judgments are accurate and right. He judged the great whore. Sorry, babe, it's what the scripture says. I'm reading the scripture. The earth ruined with her cheating sex and God's servant's blood spilled by her hand. He restored to rightness. The second, hallelujah, Revelation 19.3 is breathed gratitude as the billowing smoke of her incineration just disperses into the air. Hallelujah, her smoke ascends and endlessly it ascends and ascends. The third hallelujah, 19.4, spiced with the affirmative amen is spoken by the 24 elders and the four creatures, the resident community around the throne, the splendid choir, invisibly present to our ragtag gatherings that we have here in comparison for worship every time we gather and then answered out of the throne itself. Amen, hallelujah. Praise our God, all his servants, everyone and all before him, all the small people, all the big people, Revelations 19, 4 and 5. And then the fourth hallelujah, Revelations 19, 6, is a thundering congregational response to the call to worship that issued from the throne and called everyone to praise God. It goes on to announce the meal that we celebrate with Christ and his people into an eternity shared The marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah! The Lord rules our all-powerful God. Now we're verses 6 through 8. Let us be glad. Let us celebrate. Let us offer the glory to Him. For the Lamb's marriage has arrived. His bride has dressed herself. In the wedding gown He gave her a gown of linen, lament, and clean. In the Psalms, The four hallelujahs are seen in in chapters 146, 147, 148, 149. Gathered all the pain and lament of Israel out of the mud of unfinished judgment into a detailed elaboration of worship. And then fused them into the mighty Psalm 150 with its 13 shouts of praise. Hallelujahs is resounding through Israel and the church. Here the four hallelujahs gather the broken bodies of spilled blood of the church out of the judged world into the great celebration which all our celebrations are connected and pronounce a blessing on the guest. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Babylon has fallen. Hallelujah, the world system has ended, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Babylon is gone. No more evil influence in our worship expression. Babylon is gone, it's falling. Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, Visit us at dwell church.